0: AMU, American Military
1: University, is proud to present Protect and Secure. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Glenn Koska, your host, and my guest today is Eric Klein-Smith, who is the Associate Vice President for Business Development in Intelligence, National and Homeland Security and Cyber for American Military University. He is a former army intelligence officer with vast experience in intelligence, counterintelligence, national security and similar fields. He is also the author of the 2020 book, Intelligence Operations, Understanding Data, Tools, People and Processes. So how are you today, Eric? Great, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming along and joining us. And. Uh, that resume is quite impressive. I only gave out just the one paragraph version, but I know that you've done so much stuff in your great career. And uh, one of those things is to do with the famous case, which is um, coming up on its 50th anniversary next year, and that is the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, which occurred in November of 1971. And to date, it's the only unsolved airplane hijacking or skyjacking in US history but I think I know you well enough to know that unsolved means it has to be solved or at least uh, <laughs> that's the way I am about unsolved things so eric why don't you give us your um give the audience the lowdown on what exactly happened on november 24th 1971
0: yeah if you'd have asked me just even 10 years ago why would I be why would I ever get involved in this case i i You know, as somebody who comes from the intelligence side, it's very, you know, it's it's a very different change to then go from intelligence, which is more predictive analysis of what's going to happen in the future versus investigative analysis, which is really trying to recount what had happened in the past. And so just as a quick overview of the case, this was uh, uh, an individual who had boarded a flight, uh, Northwest Airlines flight in November 24th of 1971. And he wrote Dan Cooper on his boarding pass, or as he as he boarded, the the term D B Cooper came from the first media reports, and they just went from went with it after that. Um, there, there really was no record of, of D B written on on any of the any of the boarding documents. Uh, so at, you know, partway through the flight, he notified the flight attendant who and noticed said that he in his suitcase he had a bomb. And he demanded to be landed. The the, the airline uh, landed the plane, and I think it was up in the the Seattle Tacoma area. And he demanded two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars in cash, as well as two parachutes. And and that's one of the one of the interesting parts is why would he ask for two parachutes when obviously he's just going to jump by himself? Well, he 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 did not want a parachute that had been rigged. So if if they sent him one that was rigged, he quite possibly could have put that onto to one of the crew members and have forced them out the plane with a bad parachute. And so he did that spe- with specific planning, knowing that uh, that was kind of his insurance. Uh, when the plane take off, took off the second time, it was just him and the flight crew. He then told the plane to take off and head toward, uh, I think it was either Mexico or part of the Caribbean, which they started as they started their flight plan, and it was just into that second flight where he had... Told the crew to I want every I want everybody up front uh, as the flight attendants were up front and uh, the pilot they they noticed a noticeable shift in the weight of the aircraft almost as if they're hitting an air pocket and uh, and that they understood that that was probably the moment that he had dropped the now for this type of aircraft I think I can't remember the the actual nomenclature but it was a the type that had a back entrance and so you drop the ramp. To the back of the aircraft, he had him fly at just over stall speed at a certain height, so it was obvious obvious that it's, it's as close as the conditions he could get to jump out. And then he was able to do that and jump out and and, and again wipe down the area in the back, so that there was no evidence or fingerprints of any any place that anything that he had touched on the aircraft. And so that's the last time anybody saw him. And the, a lot of the conspiracy theories, you know, went from uh, he died on impact, he never made it down. You know, it's like he, he, or he never survived the landing and,
1: and, and all of that. It's interesting, a theory about him not surviving the landing or dying on impact, to me, you know, there would be something that they would find. I mean, cadaver dogs, uh, searching and all sorts of different methods to try and find basically a corpse with a parachute on his back. So that, to me, is one of the least believable concepts. Some of the younger listeners on this podcast might be a little bit shocked to hear that you can just walk onto a plane with no security screening and, and actually have a real bomb in your suitcase, because he did have dynamite in his suitcase. Of course, back in 1971, there was no screening. Uh, it was basically like riding a bus, except you're in the air. So
0: well, You know, what's interesting is the first you know real recorded successful hijacking of an aircraft from, from a terrorist standpoint was only three years earlier in 1968, and it was a hijacking of an LL flight from Israel. LL has since changed their security measure that has, has since been successful in their airlines for the Israelis. And there's been some others, the... Um, uh, oh boy, the you know the Black September group and the the Dawson's Field uh, hijacking, where they're able to get several aircraft all at once and then blow them up at in, in an undescript airfield in Syria. All of that was taking place in the late '60s, early '70s. But in the U.S., it, that was wasn't even entered into our lexicon that hijack or skyjacking or any kind of terrorist type or um, you know a ransom event would take place. So this you know is, was really the first of its kind for our U.S. law enforcement to deal with as well. And obviously this was a an FAA case and then picked up by the FBI. But one of the frustrations that we had, even do when we're doing our investigation as a cold case, is the same group within the, the local FBI field office that handled cold cases was the same team that worked uh, missing and exploited children. So I mean so what's your priority? The uh, you know a live human being that has been abducted this week or you know or somebody's child or a 50 year old case that you know didn't kill anybody and only asked for that amount of cash. I mean that's that's one of the reasons why you know we we felt also it just it wasn't solved because it could, was never a priority when you line it up against you know obviously more important live cases that were ongoing.
1: right. I suppose that's understandable, but but at the same time, it's, it's one of the biggest mysteries that we've had in law enforcement over the last 100 years. Um, so why don't you give us a little bit of info about the immediate aftermath? I mean, the authorities came in, the FBI. What was it that they found on the flight and what kind of physical evidence did they have Right after that flight landed, and and all these events had just taken place. Well, it was interesting, and this is outlined
0: in the first documentary that our our team did for the History Channel in 2017. And, you know, they go over a lot of the details, and they, and they found out that there was very little physical evidence that there was available to them going on to the aircraft later. In fact, the the flight attendant. And this, and again, this this gets to another point later on. I'll get to, but the the flight attendant, you know, themselves even had a hard time describing what he looked like, and part of that was just from the psychological shock. The thing about the cold case investigations, and this is what we're finding, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'll tell you right now, I'm I am on several cold cases because of this one, and and it's there's we're seeing the same pattern over and over, and that it is very hard, next near impossible to solve a cold case by recreating the previous investigation that had already been made. And, and because what you're doing is you're, you're working yourselves along a timeline, you're saying these are all the things that we know that happened up until the crime was committed. After that, we don't know, but we have all these different branches of things that could have happened. Now let's take a look at each one of those and see if that's, that's the right. Problem is, is it, it's hit or miss at that point because your leads dry up. That, again, that's why the case goes cold. For this case, as we got into the investigation, we were actually given information about who the person was, and so that that's and that's the the start point of our investigation. Is we took the name of the person and we started to work that backwards to either confirm or deny that person. And if you know, and if and if you can immediately deny it says now that this, this doesn't line up, whoever gave us this story was a kook or whatever, and you know it's you know case closed. We didn't solve it. But for this one, the, the person that we identified, too many things started falling into place. And our team lead is a, a guy named Tom Colbert, and he works um, as an investigative reporter and, and, uh, and, and a producer of several, of several uh, law enforcement shows. Uh, he's had a wealth of experience, and so the, the initial tip-off to uh, Cooper's real identity didn't come from him just diving in and says, "You know, today I think I'm going to be a conspiracy theorist and find out who this guy is." It was in an, on another investigation that he was running when he was investigating a, a heroin drug triangle between Las Vegas, Seattle, and, and Los Angeles. And as he was, you know, reporting and talking on different, talking to different folks, it was then that one of the his sources fingered and says, "You know." I, you know, I, I tell you, uh, this is the guy. The, one of the guys that you're looking at is the guy that has told me that he's DB Cooper, and he says, "No kidding." And he and he gave up a guy whose his name was called Dick Briggs, John Richard Briggs or or Dick Briggs. And as Tom started his investigation, really working solo, he identified that you know it wasn't Dick Briggs who was DB Cooper. There was he, he he denied it for him by looking at some of the evidence that was available, but it was his friend and very close associate, a guy named Robert Rackstraw. And all of a sudden, as he was looking at that point, and that's when that for him, you know, and he was using old time gumshoe reporting, you know, beating the street, talking to folks, you know, nefarious to legitimate uh, conversations, you know, finding out information and, and all the pieces were pointing toward Rackstraw. And that's when he called me. And that was in, 2011. So we've been working this for we've been working this for 9 years. So on the 40th anniversary of the jump is when we started or when I started in.
1: Yeah, that that would have been uh late in 2011. Now, so you've just named a gentleman Robert Rackstraw. Now, could you give us a bit more detail? I know that there was some other suspects that the FBI had on their list. Uh, There was uh, Ted Mayfield and Richard McCoy Jr. But this particular person, there was a photograph or composite sketch that the FBI did in 1971. And many people have probably seen it and not even realized it was, you know, they've seen it and they recognize it, but perhaps didn't make the connection that this photo fit, this uh, composite sketch was was D.B. Cooper. But Robert Rackstraw... I mean, it's almost as if he sat for the sketch. There's a photograph of him that's, that's out there in the public domain that looks exactly like this composite sketch. I mean, it could be like one of those apps that sort of turns your photograph into a sketch. I mean, that's how accurate this thing looks. Of course, you can't just go on that as being the evidence uh, that it's he's the guy. So, what, you know, you said you've been working on it for that many years. So tell me you sort of like... What went on from twenty eleven onwards uh, that that sort of honed in on Rackstraw as the guy the neat thing about how Tom approached it is you know
0: I was only one one of several people that he called, and he was able to from his years of experience of doing other investigations, he had a whole litany of folks with that were experts in different areas, and so the first time that he called somebody that had an intelligence background. To do the, uh, to do, uh, you know, analysis of all the, all, all the uh, pieces as more of a, you know, my approach was more of a holistic support to them. So uh, his frustration was that he had built so much data and, he, and at the time we, st- he brought me and he had already had, I want to say 50 to 60 pages just worth of his investigative notes as he was putting them together. And he was going to various law enforcement, talking to different folks, and he was plopping this large document on their desk and you know, who's going to read that? No one. So one of the things he came to me for was to find a way to portray this in a more accurate manner. And so we, I, at the time I was uh, running the U.S. Army intelligence uh, training program for the individual, uh, uh, individual soldiers um, within the military. So I had a you know, a, a program of about 150 instructors. I was in charge of. But one of the things that we did is we did teach a lot into the data mining tools, link analysis, time event analysis, that kind of thing. And so, I took the dossier that he had given me and I handed it to one of my link analysis instructors. And, and the guy was a uh, David D'Alessio, fantastic guy, uh, f- former drill sergeant uh, for the army out of Pennsylvania. And I said, all right, just, you know, put something together and we'll start playing with it. Um, you know, th- throw the information in, the, in a link analysis chart. And he came back in about a half hour. He goes, I don't want to work on this anymore. And I was like, what's the problem? I was like, this guy's this guy's bad. This guy has killed people. And I was like, yeah, I forgot to tell you there's a bunch of other things that are tied to this guy. And so he, <laughs> so it was, you know, we got we got through it. He, I, you know, I talked him through it. And I was like, look, this is. You know, uh, I, you'll see a lot of other things, and, and that's one of the reasons why I believe that uh, he, he never came forward. Once we had this link chart done, there were so many neat things that we were able to show with this chart and clear up. And, and it's, you know, what you do when you're doing data mining, when you're doing visualization of data, you're taking those 60, 70 pages worth of documents. Instead of having to read them, you're visualizing them. So you're seeing all of that in a link chart, very complex chart that we ended up with. It actually showed us a lot of different things that, I, that we went back to Tom and said, you know what, you really need to start talking about this person or you need to start asking these folks these questions because this is the gap that we're seeing in the chart or this is a new lead that... If you read through the document, you're not going to pick out. But when you can visualize it, you're going to pick that out in a second. This is a person that that's probably tied to this other person or whatever. And that's that's the whole beauty of doing that kind of analysis. And so, once we gave that chart back to him, uh, Tom and another investigative reporter did a cold approach. And actually, there's the, you know they they filmed it as they approached him. You know, first they came. To him, He was, uh, the guy was working in, a, in a, a shipyard in San Diego at the time he owned a yacht called Poverty Sucks. And they told him that we were just doing a documentary, that kind of thing. But then they came back the next day and they handed him the chart that we had made. And he looked at that chart and just sat there and stared and then just started picking that out. Like, and, and Tom was walking him through. I said, like, well, that's you, right? I said, oh, yeah, that's me. Said, oh, boy, you got Dick Briggs. here. yep, that's him. That's him over there. And he started verifying different pieces but again, he could not come forward and say that he was the guy. Um, so, you know, so the, the Tom, uh, Tom was able to, you know, get a, get as much information as he could. He did pick up DNA evidence because uh, he had thrown a, a water bottle that he was drinking from away into the trash, and so he added that to his bevy of information. But what became the some of the key pieces is that Tom was able to dig up information. On what happened after he landed, uh, after the jump, and that part has not really come out yet. Um, there's some articles about that. That Tama talked about. If you go to the website dbcooper.com, he, that, that's his website. It's it's all the information that he has. That's that's lined up there. It's a link to his book, The Last Master Outlaw. But what they ended up doing, and again, this was in uh, 2017, was they gathered a team of local folks out that he was working with out in California. They went up into the hills of California, and based upon the fact that somebody was waiting to pick him up, that was a, a small aircraft pilot, a charter flight was waiting to pick him up at. You know, once he landed, he had to walk, I think, less than a mile from where he landed down to a small remote airstrip. That and he was picked up with from that aircraft, taken to another. Uh, air, you know, aircraft. To, you know, did a couple of jumps and was finally was taken to where he had a, a car to drive away uh, with everything. And so, what Tom did is he took the, you know, part of our team. They went up into the, the, you know, the hills of Northern California, and they started digging in areas where where the witnesses said that this is where the guy came from. They started digging and they found a piece of the parachute, and it was is actually the 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 canvas portion of the parachute that was that that you kind of uh, covers up that when you open the parachute up it's it's for the housing of the parachute itself and it was a piece of canvas and it lasted you know for 50 some years and they handed that over to the bureau but if and, and again if we were able to identify that this is the type of parachute it was the exact uh, part that it came from this is the exact parachute this was the same parachute that he was given and these guys would never have been able to to go into the you know millions of square miles of wilderness of northern California unless every piece of information they had about when he landed and when he picked up and where he walked out of the woods from to this remote landing strip. If none of that was true, they never would have found this piece of the parachute. And So that one physical piece validated almost every part of that and because it validated that part the the rest of the story of this guy's life started to fall into place as part of that. And to me, you know, from when I was doing the analysis portion of it, um, you know, this was all all these different areas were added on after we had finished creating this chart and that started putting the pieces together.
1: Wow. I mean just listening to that, it sounds amazing. It sounds like a novel almost. It's it's almost like it 's the way that you 're describing these things, especially the link chart now you you showed me the link chart I, I got a glimpse of it, and just to describe it to the list, to our listeners it's it 's basically a very huge poster size flow chart and correct me if i 'm wrong of all the different pieces of evidence and it 's a timeline and everything just in your mind and in tom colbert 's mind, it all points to this guy, Robert Rackstraw as being the guy and like I said earlier there are there are many different people that the FBI were looking at and they went the FBI back then and even now perhaps or over the years over the last 50 years they had a certain way of doing things and like you said at the beginning that's that's old you know the, you're not going to solve this by taking what, those case files looking at them and you know, let's just try this again cuz that's just going to get you to the same roadblocks but but what you did or what what your team did or Thomas Calbert was just attack it from a whole different um angle. And let me just say there are a lot of conspiracy theorists out there about D B Cooper. I mean you know, not to be too blunt, but there are a few chuckleheads out there that they have a conspiracy theory about everything. But you guys are legit, and I want our audience to know that. I mean you guys are one of the um, premier teams that looked into this. And you don't you don't get a History Channel program and a book, and there's some street cred with you guys. And I want to emphasize that, because there are a lot of uh, theorists out there, and some of the theories are quite crazy. But what you've said is that he survived the jump, and he went about his business. And you mentioned the DNA when Tom sat down and spoke to him. Was there DNA that was Gavid in 1971 i know that he smoked like a pack of cigarettes on that flight and they collected some of those cigarette butts
0: right and i think they were able to pull the dna from it the problem is and this is it's not just this case is there uh, a lot of folks in front in, in law, law enforcement have a sense of frustration when when you have to work with the the fbi and it's and I can't remember the, the some. Just talking to somebody recently on a separate case. Um, it was the, the, they had renamed the, the the word the letters FBI was uh, something something like one one way information. And so if if they're actually actively working the case and you present them with more information, they'll take it and they won't tell you anything. If they're not working the case, they won't tell you anything. And so it's it's very it's a very one one way street, and it's a culture thing. More than anything else, it's just, you know, and again, as, as you're trying to protect protect the, the integrity of your own investigation, the last thing you want to do is leak out information that says, yeah, we think this is the guy or not or something like that. I, I understand it. I get that. Uh, the problem was that in the middle of this investigation, and again, the same week that this History Channel documentary aired, the Bureau closed the case and said this is no longer an active case. And, you know, that all that did was just throw open the door for a, a lot of more questions from there. And so our the, the, the lawyer that we had on our team uh, filed a FOIA or a Freedom of Information Act, to. So if, if the case is closed, that means it's no longer an active investigation. Therefore, you can ask for that information via via this method. Um, you know, it has to be done through the court process. And so our, our lawyer... Um, that worked on the case, actually, the the, uh, name is uh, Mark Zaid. And uh, Mark Zaid is actually the same lawyer that represented the whistleblower for the Ukrainian scandal last summer, and that went all the way through impeachment of Donald Trump. So that as as we started getting, you know, tried to get more information about what they knew and what they had, we found more documents, found more eyewitnesses that, that, you know, one of the reasons, and again, this is our theory, and this is what we're, we're pushing forward, uh, as we're shopping around a, another documentary for this, is we think that the reason why the FBI stopped investigating is because he was an ass- he was an asset to another organization, the Central Intelligence Agency. And we and this was back from his time in Vietnam. He was a um, a, a warrant officer in the in the U.S. Army at, during Vietnam. He was a helicopter pilot, and he was involved in his mission for his. Uh, f- uh, that that he flew was that they would put U.S. Army would put several helicopters in the air during a firefight or a battle and these were direction finding helicopters so that if somebody was firing a mortar round or any kind of indirect fire they would be able to use several helicopters to triangulate uh, from the acoustics of the blast and and, the, and uh, picking up the, tra- the, the trajectory of the rounds as they were coming in is be able to identify where those were being fired from now we have we have different technology to, to that you know obviously it's that's a generation ago but that's the way they did it in vietnam And so he was flying those missions um as well as another mission called left bank which is part of it's included in tom's book uh, and he shared the the same uh base as the cia that was running the air america operations and so we have lots of strong indicators and some evidence of that he was flying Air America on the side. And we think that his relationship with the CIA extended into the eighties with the Iran Contra flights. And that's all, you know, that's just piece, just pieces that, you um, know, again, without, you know, revealing, you know, and again, you're not revealing any, I'm not revealing any classified information or anything like that, but the standard procedure that is, is, you know if if the FBI is is looking at this guy and they think that hey this might be the guy uh, next thing you know you're running up into another organization that says you can't touch him he's ours and there's a huge classification issue you know 70 years from now when they when they declassify all kinds of different records of the, of the time uh, of the time you know and this could be you know 20 years from now or wherever uh you know you'll see that come out so that's one of the reasons why we think the case was never solved is that it was not meant to be solved because, the, they, because, his, because of his relationship with the other, other part of the government.
1: This is Glenn Koska, your host, and today I'm talking to Eric Kleinsmith about the D.B. Cooper case, and we'll be right back. The national security field needs skilled people capable
0: of analyzing data and converting it into meaningful insights for national decision makers and private companies. American Military University offers bachelor's and master's degrees to equip intelligence community professionals with the knowledge they need. Learn from leaders in the intelligence community. Apply now at amuonline.com.
1: And we're back. And let's get right back into this discussion, Eric. So it's interesting to me that after this hijacking took place, there were countless different theories about what happened and why. If there is a why, have you looked into why somebody would want to do this? I mean, there are other ways to sort of solicit $200,000 without jumping out of an airplane. Well, you know, and that's the thing, that that goes back to,
0: what was he pissed off at? And as we looked into his background, we had learned that he was actually released from the military with a less than honorable discharge because he had lied about having uh, much of his record. And so he lied that he had two bachelor's degrees and, uh, you know, which was a requirement for one officer and even um, company grade officer, Lieutenant stat, you know, status on up. And so that's part of why he was removed. So that kind of crashed his life, uh, you know, right at the beginning because he, he was ejected from the military. So that's what we felt was his reason on why, when you say, you know, why are you pissed off? You know, yeah, I'm I'm pissed off at a lot of things, but several other things that he was involved with during his life, lots of other, I want to call them grifting operations or, or, or that kind of thing that, that he was doing from, from time to time. And I, we think, again, that's another reason why, it fit his profile or his signature, however you want to say, but it was also showed that of one of the reasons why he didn't want to come forward. And that's one of the first things I went back to Tom was like, you're never going to get this guy to admit it because if he admits this, he's going to have to own up to all these other things that he had done during his life. Now, unfortunately he passed away last summer in 2019 and, um, you know, in, in the time before he had passed away, uh, we know that he was, you know, in active negotiations with Tom Colbert through his lawyer, you know, through Tom's lawyer to actually have him come forward. And the, the, the deal Tom was trying to work with him is to, to explain him is like, you know, you, you know, you didn't kill anybody. It was not that big of a crime. You may do at your age, you may do, you know, six months to a year, maybe some, you know, some other, you know, at home restrictions, but you'll never buy, you'll never have to pay for a drink the rest of your life because of the cult following that's behind that. Um, But, you know, we still could not get him to to come forward. And And, and again, he's, he's spent his entire life circling back around there at times. We know from folks that he would, he would brag about and say, yes, I was him. But then when anybody seriously talked to him, he would change his demeanor and change his mind. So. One of the, the big indicators we got, and this is this is one of the things that we most recently came out from, is he wrote several letters to different you know, newspapers and to the FBI after he jumped. He wrote six of them. It's only been recently that we had one of our, uh, again one of, another one of the contacts of Tom Colbert uh, was able to get a code breaker to take a look at these letters and he been he had been poring over them for weeks and he and he broke that there were the codes that were written, hidden within his each of these six letters to the point where on the last letter he finally signed his name uh, essentially saying that he was you know who he was And again, writing it in codes that this guy was able to to extract from the letters themselves. But he also said, if any, you know, uh, I can't remember exactly the phrasing, but he just, but he said that if I am caught, I am this, you know, this is my name. I am, um, I am CIA. And that's one of the pieces that he, why, how we linked that to him is that he just said that if he ever got caught, contact the CIA, they'll, they'll take, you know, I think it was his belief that they would take care of him.
1: Interesting. So this expert looked at these letters that D.B. Cooper, of course, the pseudonym that he that he went by, he wrote these letters and this expert was able to see links in between each letter. Basically, if I was to read the letter, I wouldn't see anything. But this person was an expert in code cracking, so to speak. And he saw a pattern in each of these letters, which which basically solidified who the guy was.
0: And it wasn't for this, you know, for anybody else, it, it may have been difficult, but this guy came back and said, you know, the reason why I was able to break this is this is the standard code they use for training in the Army at the time when, when and again, this guy was, uh, you know, our code breaker was in the was in the military. same time. This is where he learned it. He goes, this is, this is my the basic code that they were used as a training piece. This is what he's using. So it was not hard for him to crack it once he identified that there were codes in there. And a lot of them were just you know what what really tagged him was that there were several number combinations within the letters that just did not make sense they they did they just didn't fit in and that's when he started poring over it to try to figure out what it was to to decrypt a lot of these things and and do that so again again that's it was another piece of information and again all of this was handed back to the bureau and you know what you know from our perspective is once once it was handed over it was handed into a black hole and we never heard anything about it or saw anything about it again.
1: Right. Well, there's plenty of people at the Bureau who weren't even born when this event took place. And like I said earlier, they probably get so many of these inquiries a month.
0: And at this point, it's really no longer a crime. It's more of a historical re- research from from our standpoint.
1: And it, it needs to be solved. I mean... It's like uh, Amelia Earhart going missing. That's another example of something that was an unsolved case. But it doesn't mean that, you know, it's still not interested and you, you don't want to find out the truth. Now, let me ask you, during this whole investigation and finding the piece of the parachute... Etc. Were there any other suspects that you came across that you were able to eliminate? Or how did it how did you hone in specifically? It really
0: wasn't a, a method of, of putting up a list of, uh, you know, the usual suspects and then uh, going through and investigating each of them and eliminate him. Once we had gotten this, it was really more of an effort to say, you know, either this guy is the guy or the case is again is wide open. and And that's where, you know, the entire investigation focused on you know, either confirming or denying different pieces. And we, you know, again, I hit this one very, with a ton of skepticism. And we've had some, you know, long conversations and long meetings where we were tearing through this this data. It's like, wait a minute, you, you just can't throw this one out. You have to have something that backs this piece up. This doesn't make sense. And so there was lots of skepticism going into this because you don't want to have a cold case team made up a bunch of a bunch of conspiracy kooks. You know, that's just a waste of my time, waste of anybody else's time. It's, it's not worth doing that the veracity of this investigation was was key the entire time to put this together. That's why, you know, the code breaker was instrumental. We've had, you know, we've, you know again, this, we ended up with a team of 45 individuals. All of them were experts, former law enforcement, former bureau members, for, um, uh, active crime scene investigators uh, that, that are still in the business. You know, we, we brought in folks all over the place, but... It was tough to look at this guy. He's, he's at some point he's had 22 different fake identities. He's had several career jumps. He's had multiple contacts. Um, he, even posing as a as a, a millionaire uh, Swiss entrepreneur living in a north a northern or- Oregonian town, saying that he was going to uh, spread all kinds of money around town and everything else. And, and then he took the name at that point of Norman uh, Norman D Winter. And we knew from that point that if we did research on that part, is that he, the reason why he took that one is he took it from the name Dick Winters, who was the you know company commander of Echo Five Hundred First Infantry during the you know the Band of Brothers during World War Two, um, and so he he took that name because he knew who he was and he knew his history, and so that that became kind of his persona during that one period of his life after the jump. And so there's I mean the guy's story is just so fascinating of of one thing after another he that he had done to I want to say to subvert the system and carve out a life for himself using you know using a unique pattern. We've got photos of him wearing a lieutenant colonel's uniform with all kinds of fake badges and are uh, not fake badges, but you know, obviously the rank we couldn't attribute to him, and all these things. I mean, we we had to tear his uniform apart from this photo. We're just like, no, he didn't do this. He didn't do this. There's no way he could have done that. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, again, it was just another chapter of it. Like, then this guy was was grifting his entire life.
1: Yeah, because some of the other the other suspects that they've had over the years, the evidence pointing at them is not as strong as Robert Rackstraw, and, you know, the fact that he he had a record that after this, you know, 1971 incident, he continued to almost be a fake. And like you said, he had 22 different identities. He tried to fake his own death. Uh, he lived all over the place. I mean, to me, and I don't know as much about it as you do, but his credibility is not exactly 100% stellar here. I mean, he sounds like his whole life was a fake or a joke, or not a joke, but you know, it, it was a, it, it was a lie basically. So how do you believe anything he says?
0: We got to the point where I, I, I and I say this over and over, it's just we got to the point with our investigation where I, I was under the belief that if this guy didn't do it, O.J. did it. You know, and that's just. It was just there were just too many things that were in there. You know, for for Intel, we don't have to we don't have to have something that's provable in a court of law for us to do intelligence analysis. We you know, we got five or six things that says somebody is a bad dude. We can go forward with our analysis to whoever we're supporting. So this guy is a bad dude. But from the legal standpoint, it just you need to take into consideration all the exculpatory information, mitigating information, anything that exonerates this person. All of those have to be argued against. Um, But we got to the point where we handed the Bureau hundreds of pieces of of evidence to to include the DNA, to include, you know, these other pieces that that all these things that we had learned about it. And, you know, and that's where it stands right now. So there's as they did, the History Channel did this uh, documentary in 2017. He was still alive. And so it was a two parter and even after we we watched it it was like everything was great up until the last 15 minutes and then it was like a deliberate attempt by the producers of that show to completely obfuscate and muck up the investigation and discount it and say you don't know what you're talking about and then leave it very open-ended and tom colbert was just, he was very shocked and burned by the by the investigation or by the documentary itself and, and it's, it's just like, you know why they did that? Because they didn't want to get sued because he was still alive. And he was suing Tom Colbert because the documentary had given him a heart attack, literally, at when it aired. And he was suing Tom Colbert
1: and, and the investigative team for a billion dollars. The production company was probably thinking, uh-oh, I don't you know, I don't want him coming after us. but, but, But the point is, on all of that was that you guys did some excellent research, and not just over a couple of months. I mean, it was over years and years of painstakingly going through every piece of evidence until you were able to prove it, in effect. And it is a little troubling that you have effectively proven it, in my mind and our listeners can go and and look at the book and probably find that documentary and, and you said it was dbcooper.com dbcooper.com is the uh, the website that Tom Colbert has where there's lots of information
0: you know what's what's interesting about this tom was getting ready to close this you know he's he's talking to different folks about a, some documentary deal is that kind of thing in the middle of it we we had somebody call us from out of the blue and says i got another case for you and I t- can't talk about the case because we're still it's still ongoing, but it was it's one of those where it's just as notorious as this one. But again, it was because somebody said, "I have a final piece to this other puzzle. Do you guys want to pick this one up?" So we picked it up, and we've been working it actively this this summer, you know, during the pandemic and everything else. And it was just in the middle of the summer that we got another call from somebody else. This, and this actually came through one of our faculty members in our, in our, our criminal justice department, uh, Jennifer Buchholz. Uh, she wrote an article about doing cold cases because she, as a private investigator, as one of, one of her many jobs outside of uh, uh, our university, uh, she was contacted by somebody who says, hey, I'm working another case. And she wasn't sure who to turn to in the schools. And, and immediately the folks that knew me said, you need to talk to Eric. Uh, and so she, you know, her and I got together and I got together with her, um, with her source. I got to her source and uh, Tom Colbert together. And, and lo and behold, we had a, a whole, th- a third case that we are now actively working to the point that we think we know where, where to look for missing persons. We think we need to know, we think we're going to... um Get some. We're, get, we're right now. We're actively seeking out some DNA to link a person to the to another crime, and it's and it became it, it became one of those things where this this methodology has just proven itself to me personally three times, and to you know, and to Jen and to Tom several several more times on other cases, as we work within our school and you know if you look at you know, the average age of our students are 33 years old. That means they're in the workplace. That means, you know, our, and we're going to limit it. Obviously we're limited to graduate students and alumni. And what you know, that if you you have these, you know, graduate students, these folks are active investigators. We have a huge footprint in law enforcement, a huge footprint in intelligence and security. And so, you know, we're now exploring the use of crowdsourcing as a method to solve some of these cold cases. And it's just really now, coming up with a structure of, of how do we herd all these cats? Um, you know, how do we have a a no kid rational method for nominating a case, a rational method for having a case manager, a deputy case manager chair that through. And then a, like a transfer committee that says that we think we have enough here and we've done done enough at devil's advocacy, We've done enough, you know, trials on it that we now think we have enough that we can transfer this back to law enforcement to assist them. Um, now that is a, You know, it's a very unique concept. There's only one or two other schools that's even attempting something like that. But with the size of our school being 100 percent online, we could possibly get a huge set of involvement on on working several cases. Now, there's, I think, what, 25,000 unsolved murders within the U.S. There's a thousand new cold cases that emerge every year or, or, or cases that go cold every year for some obviously for some significant attacks or crimes that take place there's the the law enforcement just does not have the time to actively keep continuing to pursue these. But what is out there is you've got a whole bevy of criminal justice students all throughout the U S and the world. And you have retirees who may not physically be beaten uh, on the beat, but they have the mental capacity to continue to work part-time as something that to do what their life has already been dedicated to is solving these crimes. They still have the skills and demeanor and, understanding on how to work that. And so that's the potential here of of using you know what we have available and using crowdsourcing to go after some of these cases is, is enormous.
1: It is enormous. And uh, you mentioned Jen Buchholz, and she's been a guest of mine on this podcast. And we talked about surveillance on one of them, and we talked about cold cases on the other one, and how they're using forensic genealogy to track down suspects in cold cases. And to me, a cold case, it's never frozen. There are ways to defrost that cold case and get it back into the public view. And of course, recently, with the genealogy side of things, we saw the Golden State Killer was identified. And that was a case that went back obviously into the the 70s as well. But the point is, it gives some closure to people who were affected for the FBI or the authorities to say, oh, it's just old news. I know that there wasn't any shooting involved or there wasn't, you know, there was no murder involved in this case. But people, they want the truth. And every cold case that's out there can be solved. And um, to me, this entire case is so fascinating to me that we've gone this long and have no conclusive evidence or at least official evidence of who the person was. And you you, you did a little tease earlier about uh, a couple of other cases that you are going to be looking at soon. And um, I know that you can't say much about it right now, I'm sure, but I'm excited to find out eventually what that is because if you do the same sort of uh true diligence and the work that you guys did on this one whatever it is you're trying to solve I'm sure that you will solve it
0: and part of the you know when, and the reason why we're, we're kind of keeping a lid on it is one is we do think there are some physical locations that have not been disturbed yet and so talking about it would just open it up to everybody with a shovel going out there and digging someplace you know and at the same time there's also you know it's in, in both cases that we're looking at most of the folks that were involved are no longer alive, but who, those who are alive out of the respect to uh, the families of the suspects as well as the families of the victim. It's, you know, the the last thing you need to, we need to do is is go out there and trumpet that as a, you know, as some big, uh, you know, media story for, for personal attention or gain when it's really about, again, you're, you're, yes, we get a reward that we've, we've been able to solve a crime from a, I guess ego or moral standpoint, but the real reason why we're doing that is is that there's the family members that that they've been suffering for their entire lives, either with the knowledge that their loved one was you know was the killer, or that you know their loved one was killed or disappeared and nobody saw them or whatever. It's that kind of thing that needs that, that we think about more than anything else. That's always gonna that's always in the back of your mind, and when it's not, you you, you should stop doing what you're doing.
1: Well, if unmasking. The Golden State Killer is anything to go by. Then I know that there were some victims who survived his onslaughts. And uh, I know that the closure that they have gotten from the uh, investigative work that brought him to justice, there is some major closure involved. The cold cases nowadays, through the kind of work that you do and the kind of work that forensic geologists do and various branches of Law enforcement and um, other scientific industries, there's no cold case out there that can't be solved these days. And uh, we've talked about one today. Um, I could talk about it all day, to be honest with you, Eric, but we're coming up on time to close this down a little bit. It's just, it's been a fascinating uh, chat with you. And I know that our audience has probably been very interested and compelled about this case and how you've got to the bottom of it. And again, if anybody's interested in the case evidence and uh, some of the other media and research that Tom Colbert and uh, Eric and the team did, the website is dbcooper.com. And I encourage people to go look at that.
0: And actually, the, the chart that we created is on that site. Great. So, I mean, it's massive, but that, that's on that site as well.
1: That chart is very interesting to look at. I encourage our audience to go look at that, too. So, Eric, I just want to say thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Glenn. And I hope that we can have you again as a guest in the future.
0: As soon as I can come back and tell you something new, I will.
1: All right. I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) All right. All right. Thanks, Eric. For more information about our university, visit us at
0: amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU. American Military University.